Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Sydney. It's a pleasure to meet with you and to see your smiling, masked faces. Um, yes, so uh, one, one announcement. We, well, I guess two. Next week will be, I think it's communion, right? Next week's communion. And the following Saturday will be, we're having like a men's afternoon. So probably some barbecue will be involved and more details coming that later. So that's 11 December when that happens. So it should be a good time to catch up. Um, and we'll be in Job 21, starting in verse 17 today. It's been a really good passage for me. I know the Lord's used it in my life and challenged me in many ways and showing me areas where I need to be changing and be humbled before him. So it's, it's always good when the Lord speaks to us and ministers to our hearts. And I pray he does so for you as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom, that you lead us with your eye, that you lead us to the things you see that we cannot see. And you lead us to deal and give us the power to uh, confess sin and to forsake it and to do the things that please you, to, to move away from our natural tendencies of the flesh and to embrace humility before you and surrender. Thank you that you are the awesome God who's revealed yourself to man. Thank you that you are gracious and patient and compassionate towards us, that your mercies are new every morning. How good you are, Lord, how blessed we are as your people. So we come before you now desiring that you would open our eyes to receive of your truth and to walk in it, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. When an accident happens on the road, one determination is who is at fault, right? That's a very important uh, decision to be made because it impacts moving ahead with repairs or insurance claims. And there are cases when there are multiple people at fault, like one could be deemed 40% at fault and 60. And that would be called contributory negligence. Where I was like, okay, so you, you were negligent, you contributed toward the accident. And then there's that rare case of a blameless accident where an accident happens, but no one is at fault because there was a medical emergency. There was something that out, out, was out of the control of the driver who instigated the crash. I was like, wow, I didn't even know that was possible, but there it is. Um, that's something that we naturally tend to do, not just when we see uh, an accident or we say, you know, that person was at fault because they didn't give way. Or you're watching a game, and you're like, well, that that was a foul. That was a clear foul. It was evident that they made the mistake. And we can be very much like this in, in finding fault with a situation. There's a problem and we point who is to blame. We decide, we determine as we see it, just like an umpire. He's like, well, I call it how I see it. This is what I saw. This is the call. And there's a lot of motivations for doing so. And we can do this constantly without even thinking about it. It's like, Hair falling out, blame that stressful job or bad genetics. You're like, oh, those genetics. We, we, uh, or, or it could be something like um, headache, too much screen time, and not enough coffee. Like there, there's a whole bunch of things that we can just determine, well, it's got to be because of this, or this is a contributing factor. I'm certainly blameless in this picture. 
From the very beginning, when God called Adam out for his sin, what did he do? He said, Eve is at fault. And when Eve was spoken to, the serpent deceived me. He's to blame. So there's a shifting of blame that happens and this need to point out blame rather than accepting it. And we can assign blame to others and make excuses to avoid blame more than we realize. And if we claim to know the reason behind someone's suffering, this can add to our self-righteousness. It exposes our conceit. Now, Job's friends, they're a perfect example of this. They came to comfort him, but they lacked compassion because they viewed him as fa at fault. They say, Job, you are the cause of these problems. It's because of your sin. God is judging you. That's why you're going through these hard times. They assured Job with only his suffering as evidence that he was being judged. And, and God doesn't make mistakes, Job. He, he doesn't make mistakes. So if you're suffering, you're a sinner. And God has rightly has you in his sights. And he didn't understand, Job didn't, why he was so targeted. Like, why have I lost my 10 children? the loss of my herds, flocks, and finally his health. And his friends were quick to assign blame to him. And I feel for Job because there are many people who are blamed, who are deemed at fault, who in God's eyes are righteous. Job hadn't read, and neither his friends, chapters one and two, that said, God said that Job was a righteous man. He was upright. He avoided sin. There, there was no one as righteous as he. So it wasn't for his sin, but for his righteousness, he was allowed to be buffeted because his faith in God would come through like, like gold and would glorify and honor God. And really, we can be a lot more like Job's friends than we would like to admit. And I say that for myself. So Job, he's continuing to speak here in Job 21, 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? Job is critiquing the assessment of Zophar that... The judgment of the wicked always comes immediately to those on the earth during their life here. And Job's like, uh, Zophar was saying to Job, you are the wicked man in that scenario. You've sinned and judgments come upon you. So you need to repent. And you're like a man who is needing to reap the bitter consequences of his own sin. So come back to God, Job. But Job is like, but I haven't gone from God. I still trust God. I'm still seeking God. Why has this happened? And he says, he had said previously, there's a lot of people who don't fear God who are prosperous during their whole life on earth. They don't seem to be troubled. They seem to be doing very well for themselves. What about them? So if there's this very clear uh, cause and effect, how is it that there are so many exceptions to this rule? He asks, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? His answer would be, not very often. Not as often as it should be. That's Job's saying. He's saying, despite what you're saying, the wicked are surprisingly numerous and resilient. When I was a kid, it was a, a custom 
and maybe in our household and in others, to have a birthday cake on your birthday and you'd have as many candles as you had years. And I remember when trick candles were a thing. Did those, are those, right? Happened here as well. It was like, <laughs> and as a kid, you, you start to notice. You're like, okay, these are not like normal candles because they're a little sparkly. You can hear this because there's a little magnesium in the wick that ignites at a very low temperature. And there's enough of it that when you blow out the candle and you've succeeded, then they suddenly flare up again. And he's like, how often are the, the lamp of the wicked put out? It's like they, they're blown out and they flare right back up. They go right back to their sin. They're just stubborn in it and they don't seem to be troubled by anything. How is this possible? Like the lazy flatterer is promoted. The con artist gains wealth. Thieves profit. The slanderers, they're believed and protected. How is this possible following your logic so far? Compared to God, the wicked put up as little resistance as straw before the wind or chaff before a storm. And if he blew them away completely, why did they stick around? Why were they still here? And then he quotes those who claimed God lays up one iniquity for his children. He's saying it would be better for God to have the person who's guilty have to receive of the judgment of God rather than it being pawned off on uh, future generations. People would comfort themselves and say, well, he may not face God's judgment, but his kids certainly will. Like, yes, judgment's going to happen. And he's like, but shouldn't that person who's done the wrong have to have a negative consequence if we're going to be just? How would they know to repent if they had not tasted of God's wrath and displeasure? So what people were saying was of no consolation to Job. It was unjust, he thought, that the wicked could weasel out of destruction. And we know they won't, right? Um, That God will judge the wicked for their own sin. Yet not always on earth will they see this destruction. And then Job says, well, and if he does die and the Uh, consequences passed to the children. What does he care? He's gone. And King Hezekiah, a godly king in Judah, actually has very much that view. Uh, When he was alive, he admitted this. God revealed, like after his passing, God had miraculously restored his life, given him 15 more years. And then the prophet came and said, this is what's going to happen after you die. All Judah and Jerusalem will be carried away to Babylon. All the goods that you're proud of, that your, your parents have gained, you will lose. They'll be taken away. And your own sons will be eunuchs in Babylon. And this is what he said in 2 Kings twenty nineteen. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? It's like, well, at least it's going to be good while I'm alive. That's all I care about. This is a godly man. It doesn't mean that godly men always say or feel the right things, right? We should care about others. But Hezekiah, he wasn't fussed about what was going to happen after him. The Bible teaches every man ultimately will be judged for his own sin. The soul that sins will surely die. And this is in the law in Deuteronomy 24, 16. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. The curse of sin and death, it can be broken by the power of Jesus through the gospel, according to God's mercy. Job continues in verse 
22. Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. When parties go to court, there's the need to compile evidence and to present it before the judge and jury so they can make a determination about innocence and guilt. And the way that they answer and the facts that they bring forth, it impacts the decision of the court, right? And it's just based upon the evidence presented. If there's evidence withheld, that could impact the decision. But if they get all the evidence, then they have the best case of coming to the right decision. Now, God, he does not rely upon the testimony of witnesses because he knows everything. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows the things that we've said. He knows the motives of people who have done and said things to us. There's no one that can inform God. There's no bombshell report that God's like, oh, wow, this changes everything. Like he knows that already. He doesn't have to be instructed. He sits enthroned in heaven as judge of the living, of the dead, of angelic hosts we cannot see. And he knows everything about them. Job observed the wicked prospered in their wealth. They were secure with the produce of their flocks, like they have full pails of milk, um, died in sleep and good health. And then at the same time, there's another person who suffers, who doesn't eat well. And how the grave is the great equalizer and unifier of all men, whether they know God or not. I wonder when Job prospered, if his friends thought he was a righteous man. But as soon as he sinned, they go, well, the truth has come out now. Job really wasn't as righteous as we thought because of what he's suffering. Jesus was crucified next to two robbers. And if you had only looked at their corpses when taken down from the crosses and looked at them, you would have thought perhaps that Jesus was the worst among them because of the flogging and the beating he took. You wouldn't know the good that he had done, the good things that he had said. When you look at those three lying there, you're like, this man deserved to die. You could say that based upon what happened to him. We know better because God revealed him to be the righteous son of God, the lamb of God without blemish or spot. Job's wrestling with his feelings. He's wrestling with what he's being told. He's trying to understand why things have happened. And this shows us that real faith in the almighty God we know involves soul searching. It involves hard questions and unknowns, things that we can't answer. We just don't know why that such things have happened, why God would allow them. You will in your walk with Jesus be brought to a place where you don't understand. You can't explain why, but will you blame yourself? Will you blame others? Or will you trust God that he is good, even in pain? When I was considering how to handle this week's passage, the Lord provided me an object lesson. It confirmed my persistent tendency to assign blame where God has not. And he taught me with this very simple item. So I just brought it just because it's a weird thing. All right, this. God can teach you a lesson with this. He can use anything. And uh, so this is, I don't know if you don't know what this is, this is a stainless steel pan for mud. If you're doing some plastering uh, on your walls. So I'm cleaning this pan in the deep sink 
And I was told by Laura that Abel, my son, needs to be picked up. So I start hurrying. And as I'm hurrying, I slide my thumb right down the stainless and it just cuts me. And I'm like, oh. So as the blood begins to flow, I immediately had a flood of blame that went through my mind in probably 0.5 seconds. And it went something like this. It was like, I shouldn't be hurrying. So I'm in a rush. My hands are wet. That's the problem. Um, I wish I had a brush rather than a sponge. Um, I'm, I'm out of practice. I'm off my game. The pan is too sharp. Why do they make these pans so sharp? And if Laura had just gone and not said anything, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, that all happened like that. In a moment, this flood of blame went through my mind. I'm like, that's a lot of blame. I just blamed how many things. And if I find the one that's really to blame, would it have healed my thumb? Would it have prevented what happened? No. It wouldn't have changed the past. It wouldn't have provided aid to my thumb. It wouldn't have changed anything. But there's something in me that wants to say, this is the problem. This is at fault. Maybe so it's not me. Because I'm the one who rubbed my thumb down that pan. Even if we plead guilty, we cannot change the past. Only God is able to heal, to restore, to cause souls who trust in him to rise from the grave that rejoice in his love, life, and grace. And when we assign blame without knowing what God knows, we can sin by false accusations and our conceit. And that's where Job's friends went wrong. And it may be that Job went wrong there too. But it does no, us no good to just point out faults in others unless we also consider our own faults and how God will bring all our thoughts into judgment. Job continues in verse 27. Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? And do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out in the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? Job's like, I know how you guys are going to respond to this. I know what you're thinking. You're going to say, well, where's the wicked man? And he's saying, there's examples of this all around you. If you'll be honest, if you'll open your eyes, you could go to a foreign land. You can go to a market. You can go to a job place and find people who do not fear God, who are doing very well for themselves. Job affirmed, God's day of wrath is coming upon the wicked. There is a day of doom. There is a day of judgment. But their destruction does not always occur while they're on earth. Job goes further. He says, the people who are powerful, who do not know God, people are afraid to even confront them or risk insulting them because of their great power and influence. So he's saying, not only do they prosper, but people kind of tiptoe around them. They don't want to offend them. They were reluctant to risk insulting a wicked man because of the fear of reprisal. And then when the corrupt and the wealthy died, their tombs were guarded. They would have servants who would sit there and make sure their graves were not desecrated. 
So he's like, these guys are protected. These are the powerful ones. And you're saying that this is what's happened to me happens to all wicked? Can't be right. He says, they're resting in peace without disturbance in their graves. And yet I'm being treated like rubbish while I'm alive. Like that's the injustice here. And he says, how can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? And this is a wise saying because there's no comfort to be found in a lie. We can think that we can be comforting when we lie, but that is not true. Because the one who believes the lie is led into error. And the one who speaks them will ultimately be judged by God for bearing false witness. It's a satanic notion that Comfort can come from lies. Imagine if God lied to you for your benefit. That's totally inconsistent with his character. He does not lie. He will not lie. He speaks the truth. Lying is embedded in the ethos of the world's ethics. It is part what you learn very young that if You can benefit by misleading, by exaggerating, by blaming, by lying. We will take that opportunity to benefit ourselves and how easily we can justify them because they're not outright lies, but it's foolish to think that there is a comfort in a lie when Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. His word is pure. It is true. The truth can hurt, but when spoken In love, there is real comfort provided by God for those who will receive it. To receive the fact that you are a sinner. To receive the fact that you are, you have sinned. There is now healing for you and for your brokenness that you didn't even know you had. Now, Eliphaz responds in Job 22 verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God, though he is wise, may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? This is now Eliphaz's third and final response in this book. And he's determined to convince Job that his problems were due to God's judgment for his sin. I mean, he is just hammering home this point. He started a bit uh, indirect, kind of suggesting things at the beginning. But now he's going to nail it down with real specifics. And really, they were assumptions. He's pointing out that man cannot add to God's goodness by his efforts, nor can he strip God of glory or virtue by his sin. It's like, Job, you might think that you're of great value to the kingdom of God and his glory, but God doesn't owe you a thing, Job. All along, throughout these discourses, Job's friends had this very strong cause and effect idea that they applied to him. Like if God was truly pleased with you, Job, you'd be doing well. You would be healthy. You would be prosperous. But because you're not doing well, you're obviously in sin and God is judging you. And it seems to me that Eliphaz is stuck in an anthropomorphic error. That means to ascribe a human characteristic to God. So it's like thinking that God's like you when you are made in God's image. You are not like him in your flesh. But uh, by his grace, he has called us. He has, we have been born again through him. But it's, it would be wrong to think that, so God is a father, but it'd be wrong to, to look at how a father treats his kids and say, well, that's how God does it. Well, no, God is above that. God's beyond that. 
God transcends this shadow that we see on earth. He is the greater one. He is the real thing, right? The best a human parent can do is, is it's, it pales in comparison to the glory and goodness of God. So he's saying, as a human, we experience this sense of obligation. You guys have ever felt obligated or a sense of duty to do something because it's the right thing to do? It maybe wasn't even love that prompted you to do it, but it's like if someone's helped you, you're like, well, he did help me out, so I'm going to help him. It's inconvenient, but I'll do that. Or perhaps you promote someone who has shown loyalty to you. So your one hand washes another, right? We've heard this kind of thing. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do me a favor, I'll help you out. We feel obligated to help someone because they're our family. If they weren't our family, we wouldn't feel the same way. But because they are family, we feel obligated. And so it's like, I don't know if Eliphaz thinks God is greedy or needy, or he's looking for favor, but he's like, you don't, he doesn't owe you a thing, Job, as if that's what he needs from us. He doesn't. He has everything and he is sufficient in himself. Eliphaz didn't understand that God's blessing is not limited by our usefulness to him. That's not why Job was blessed in the first place, because he had pleased God. It's because God is gracious and God is merciful. God is generous with his things to give us life. And he blesses us out of his grace and goodness. And he does take pleasure in uprightness. This is what David prayed in 1 Chronicles 29, 17. He says, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. He says, you have pleasure in uprightness. Revelation 4, 11, it says, God is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power because he created all things for his pleasure. And people are included with that. We have been created for his good pleasure. And like a father is pleased in a son in whom he delights, so God is pleased with us. And what does God say of Jesus? It says, here is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Pleased because he's a son, pleased because he is righteous. Because he always does the will of the father. What God takes no pleasure in is the death of the wicked. He would have them turn from their sin. As he says in Ezekiel 18, 23, God said, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? That pleases God when someone turns from their sin and lives through faith in him. So man, we can't profit God at all. That's correct. Yet God is pleased to save. God is pleased when we walk uprightly. And we observe his will. Continuing in verse 4. Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have seen sent widows away empty. And the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden fear troubles you or darkness that you cannot see. And an abundance of water covers you. God 
has told us that he is like a father who chastens a son whom he loves. He corrects those whom he loves. Eliphaz doesn't have that view. And it's interesting to me how people do have different views of God and, and their circumstances. Some will relish a trial because they view opposition as an attack from Satan and it means I'm doing something right. Uh, someone else, they'll see prosperity and wealth of God's favor upon them and say, I must be doing something right. So it's all about what we're doing or what we're not doing. Um, some battle feelings of guilt because of the prosperity God has given them or others feel bad because they feel entitled to more. So there's all these different responses we can have. One of the sticking points is why some suffer while others prosper. And there's no easy answer to this. We don't know. If we imagine that what God has allowed in your life is a direct result of you doing something right or doing something wrong, the onus falls upon you then to change course or to return to that formula that's worked to this point, really to embrace a self-help religion that's devoid of God, that's that's without power to save you, redeem, restore, or deliver souls from blame. What of God's grace? What of his mercy? What about the things he has freely given? Everything we have has been freely given from the Lord. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. Is God suddenly unable to hear, save, or deliver his people when we cry out to him? Now Eliphaz, he boldly brings forth these accusations of Job's wickedness. And it's not that Eliphaz witnessed him doing all these things. But he's trotting out specific sins that he sees as justifiably punished harshly by God for his wealth. Because he had great wealth previously. He says, you've been greedy. You've oppressed your brethren. You've taken the clothes off their backs when you had clothing to spare. So it's fitting, Job, that you would be wearing sackcloth now. You've not been hospitable to the thirsty traveler. You've withheld bread from the hungry. So you're wasting away to skin and bones, Job. You've shown partiality to the rich and the powerful. Now you're the one brought low. You've sent widows away empty. You've crushed the fatherless. So you've been deprived of family. The evils that Job done, they had come back upon him. And the good he neglected to do was withheld from him. That's Eliphaz's view of things. That it was all dependent upon what he had done or had not done. And so now he was ensnared. He was in fear. He was lost in darkness. He's drowning in trouble and sorrows. And in Eliphaz's mind, this could only be the judging hand of God upon him. David knew the judgment of God to be a fearful thing. He's saying this in Psalm 143, 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. So it's like, well, what hope do we have? Unless God is gracious and makes a way for us to be justified by faith in him. In Australia, we have so many blessings, right? We have great wealth in our country. We have natural beauty. We have economic security. We've got food and water and jobs and freedoms and access to health care and 
peace with neighboring nations. And the list goes on of the many ways God has blessed us. But let's take care that we don't fall into the judgmental trap that Eliphaz did and his friends due to Job's now poverty and his previous immense wealth. Where we look at a nation and see, well, that, this is why that nation is struggling. It's because of this or it's because of that. Or we say, this is why we are blessed is because we've done this or we've done that. If a person walks by wearing a watch that would cost you a year's salary, don't assume he's greedy or covetous like you. That because he's wealthy, he must be a certain way. If he's from a certain suburb, if she's from this suburb, it's either good or bad. It's a reflection upon their character. You shouldn't think because of a car, the brand of clothes people wear, that they're vain. Because what is that? That's, that's really putting your thing upon them, your issues, your problem, your sin. If someone has marital problems or parenting issues, do you assume it's their sin, which is to blame when God has done it? And if it wasn't for Job, we might not believe that it's possible. But that's what happened in Job's case. God had done this. Job knew that. He didn't know why God had done it, but he had. It's easy to sit in the seat of Ilavaz when all is well, and we can condemn others who suffer. We find them at fault for some reason, when in God's eyes, they are not at fault. How easy it is to judge others by what we see, but cannot know. For whom among us can know another person's heart? Only God is God. Realize he will bring my thoughts into judgment. He will bring your thoughts and your words and your deeds. And the question is, have we done, have I done all that Jesus has commanded me? Please turn to the words of Jesus. We see them in Luke 6, verse 34 through 38. This is just a portion of his teaching to his disciples. Luke 6, starting in verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. I'm struck with how easily I can find fault in others, but how much more easily can God find fault in me? Right? As easy as it is for us to find fault, this is wrong, that's wrong, this should be changed. If God looks upon you, he will see even more that needs to change. And yet in our eyes, we can be blameless in a matter. Praise God. He is loving, merciful. He is gracious and kind. He is so generous with his love. Job 22 verse 12 is not God in the height of heaven and see the highest stars, how lofty they are. And you say, how does God know? What does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see. And he walks above the circle of heaven. 
Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh at them. Surely our adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes their remnant. Eliphaz here, he appeals to the greatness of God, his sovereign power and wisdom over all things. And he puts Job in the category of the antediluvian people who perished in the great flood, who said, where is God? What do you mean there's a flood coming, that there's judgment coming? That they question that God's his very existence when he had created them. And he's saying like, well, our view of the sun, it can be obscured by clouds and Do you think that God can't see through them? Do you think that he can't see what's in darkness, Job? Of course he can. He can see all things. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Now, from what I've read, the naked human eye can see about 9,000 stars from the planet. And because we're on one side of the planet, we can only see about 4,500 at one time. There's only one star in our solar system. That's the sun. And there's estimated about 100 billion stars in our galaxy. So it's like God knows all these by name. We read this in Psalm 147, 4 and 5. Speaking of God, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. That's phenomenal when there are hundreds of billions of galaxies that can be observed. Eliphaz was completely wrong to lump Job in with those who lived as though God did not exist. In his suffering, who was Job crying out to? He was crying out to God. He was asking God why. He wanted to know the reasons. He wasn't trying to hide from God. He he said, I want to bring my case before him. I want him to hear me out. I just want a chance to say words before God that he will hear and answer. And Eliphaz throws Job's claim back at him from Job 21, 16, that the counsel of wicked is far from me. Job had said that. Now he says that. And he's like, Job, because of your suffering, because of your losses, you've lost all credibility. I'm the one who's in health. I'm the one who's doing well. So I'm speaking the truth. And you wrongly blame Job as the cause of his own suffering. Yet it is not a sin to assign blame where it belongs. Sometimes someone can be at fault and it can be evident. We see this in the early church. Peter, he altered his behavior when the Jews rocked up, right? He's eating with the Gentiles. They're one in Christ. They're really embracing this unity. They're eating together. It's something that a Jew would never do. Like Peter, when he went to Cornelius' house, he's like, you know, it's really rare that I would even walk into your house. Then, because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, they're eating together. But when the Jews from Jerusalem came to check things out, they separated themselves and they wouldn't eat with them anymore. And so Paul rebuked Peter to his face because he was to be blamed, as it says in Galatians 2.11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So there are times where someone is clearly in the wrong that... um, We shouldn't be ashamed to point that out when someone is in sin. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul urged servants of God um, to give no offense in in anything that the ministry would not be blamed. 
so that our ministry would be blameless, that we are upright and honoring God in what we say and do. And when we walk in the love of Jesus towards one another, we will always be led in the righteous way. That's the safe way. That's the right way is the loving way. Whether it's God's love that prompts you to reprove or rebuke a sinning brother or to shoulder blame that you don't deserve and cover a multitude of sins. This is pleasing unto God. We cannot go wrong walking in God's love. Please turn to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 in the introduction to this book. Think of the blessing God has lavished upon us by his grace. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved." We have been born again through faith in Christ according to the good pleasure of God's will. It's his pleasure to save us and it pleases him when we walk in love towards one another. It's said often that uh, Apostle John, late in his life, he would be brought in to speak and his disciples and those who followed his, you know, the, his brothers in Christ, they would be a little kind of let down. They want to hear the wisdom from God. He's like, little children love one another. And that would be it. Uh, this is just from uh, early Bible sources or early Christian sources, not out of the Bible. But you see in his letters, he says, little children love one another, love one another. He's like a broken record. And they're like, we keep getting the same thing. He's like, just do it. Love one another. Little children love one another, just like Jesus has told us. Instead of looking to assign blame, we've been accepted in the beloved. When you see people experiencing pain and struggles and they're wondering why, love them. Don't blame them. Don't accuse them. I love that. I read it this morning that God will guide us with his eye. And think of all that God can see that we cannot see. And he leads us by his grace to say things and to do things that are loving towards others for his glory that we would have never seen or thought to do or say. I think it's fitting to close with Jude 1, 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep you from stumbling. He will present you faultless in Christ before the Father. We have been at fault many times, but he is able to present us faultless with joy before the Father. Love the Lord, you saints. Love, the, love him, you who have been born again, the ones presented blameless before the Father with exceeding joy. It's like without a single fault, no recounting of your faults before the presence of God because you have been washed clean. 
Let's confess and repent of our sin. If we have blamed others and we've criticized them instead of loving them. And God's able to keep us stumbling from this fault to point out fault. And knowing that who is at fault and who is to blame in a problem. It's not as important as knowing God who will present us blameless by his grace. I mean, what a God praise him that he is good. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the comfort that you give us in this passage. Thank you for this exhortation that we would, uh, instead of pointing out faults or looking to blame or to skirt blame, we would instead love one another as you've called us to. Thank you, Lord, that it's your good pleasure to see sinners saved, that the judgment those who are born again will face is one of reward, not of damnation. So we thank you, God, that you have revealed your will to us, that you allowed Job to go through such things so we could learn and glean your eternal truth from his situation and to apply it personally to our lives. And I pray, Lord, you would show us where we do stumble in this area. Thank you that you are able to keep us from stumbling, that we can walk in love. We don't need to stumble in love anymore. We don't need to stumble in judging or condemning others when we are called to love and to give grace. Lord, I pray that if we are aware of sin, that we would be bold to speak. We would be bold to examine ourselves and to humble ourselves under the hand of the almighty God, that we would be exalted in due time. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus is exalted. When we are humbled, he is even more exalted and that you've set him above every name in heaven and earth. And so we worship you, Lord. We praise you and thank you that you are our sovereign. You are our king, our Lord, our savior, our father, the lover of our souls. We praise and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.